Welcome to the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing podcast. I'm founder and host, Sarah McGuinness. The Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, or RO, is a community of wellbeing managers from organizations around the globe. At RO, we develop you as a wellbeing leader, giving you a powerful support network, professional development, and workplace wellbeing solutions so that you can focus on giving your employees the right support at the right time. To be stronger, better, and faster at improving wellbeing in your workplace, professional development is key. These discussions on workplace wellbeing are designed to inspire, share ideas, and raise awareness of important issues we can all take action on. The interviews are recorded as part of our monthly Wellbeing Wednesday webinars. In this episode, we're delighted to be joined by Chris Jones, Chief Safety and Wellbeing Officer at Arapitama, New Zealand's Department of Corrections. Through our discussion, we try to define what well-being actually is and what it isn't, how we can best create systems and conditions that allow well-being to emerge, and how we can quantify those factors in an effort to measure success. We also discuss the emergence of well-being as a profession and the opportunities to grow and shape the profession in the coming years. About 2002, I was studying for a degree in health and fitness. I'd always been someone who's pretty into exercise and sport and that seemed like a logical place to go to and during my first year I qualified as a personal trainer and so I spent two and a half years or so during my bachelor's really getting to grips with the concept of health fitness and wellness and what that means at the end of that degree I I moved on to a master's in exercise nutrition science and I was coming to the end of uh that degree, feeling a bit scared about the fact that I wasn't sure where I was going to go in the world when it came to work. And luckily, there was an organization in the UK called Nuffield Health who were trying to revolutionize their corporate medical program. So they'd had a very traditional approach to corporate medical assessments where a nurse and a doctor ran a number of tests to try and identify you know, whether someone was heading towards a preventable lifestyle disease. And they realized that that's not where the market was heading. And they wanted to bring in this concept of well-being. And so they recruited about 40 of us to start with, graduates from masters in health sciences and exercise nutrition to become physiologists in applied health and well-being. And so I was the South Coast lead physiologist. I saw a team of about 12 physiologists who delivered medical assessments. We ran ECGs, took bloods, did blood pressure. But we used that advice then to actually give some really good coaching and lifestyle advice to the people on what they might want to do to improve their wellness. And that's my first real move into the broader concept of not just personal training, but actually how do you coach and motivate people to improve their health? Fast forward a few years and 2009, I became professional head of physiology. So I was overseeing a team of about 115 applied health and wellbeing physiologists who were delivering about 90,000 corporate medical assessments and wellbeing interventions each year. But my role was very much in the research and development. It was very much about clinical quality and assurance, learning and development, and then also consulting big organizations on corporate well-being strategies and what they could do to improve. Um, During that time, towards the, the back end of the few years I was in that role, I started a master's degree in organizational well-being. So I've become really interested in the concept that organizations influence well-being, and I'm sure we'll talk about that today. And then just as I was partway through that master's in org wellbeing at Lancaster, Nuffield Health, uh, sorry, not Nuffield Health, Network Rail, who were a UK railway infrastructure organization, contacted me and said they were looking for someone to strategically lead the way that they did occupational health, but also wellbeing. And so I moved into that role, big organization, about 35,000 people, very heavy construction, lots of safety risks. 
the board were very much interested in the well-being agenda. Um, but as I went in, I rapidly realized that they were still really hurting people's health because of the work that they were uh, asking people to do. So that's how I moved into the space of occupational health and well-being, which was what I led. And then in 2015, WorkSafe approached me about coming out here because setting up the new legislation for health and safety, they really wanted to put the health part back into health and safety. And they asked me if I'd come over. So I led WorkSafe's work-related health function. And during the time there, I also led their guidance and standards. And then lastly, their strategy function, setting out New Zealand's broader strategies for health and safety. And then in 2017, Correction said, we really want to do health, safety and well-being differently. What do you think? And I came in with one view of what it would be like. And I can tell you, it's been a very eye-opening journey since then. But it is a great organization to work in. I've been here four and a half years now, working with some amazing people. So a bit of a long journey, but it's very much one that's gone from very much focused on individual health and wellness through to organizational well-being, occupational health, and latterly safety as well. So, mm. yeah. And if I can pick up from that, I thought what was quite interesting is you were talking about how, especially in the rail, they wanted to be involved in well-being, but it sounded like there were some real safety issues and that sometimes we use those terms or organizations use those terms sort of interchangeably, health, safety, well-being. So what's well-being as a definition for you? What does it mean? Yeah, I, I love this question, and it's, it's something I pick up on whenever I hear it. And if I'm honest, I'm going to be a bit provocative here, is because I hear the word well-being used too much. I hear it used to describe lots of things that I don't actually think well-being. And I thought what I might do, Sarah, if it's okay, is uh, share my screen if I can do. Go for uh, it. Because I am a visual person, and uh, visuals tend to work quite well. Bear with me. Let me just see if I can do that again. So hopefully you'll be able to see my screen. Perfect, can do. There we go. So I thought what I might do is share a couple of models that have really influenced my thinking and, and hopefully that will then make sense about what I think well-being is. So I mentioned that coming out of a master's in exercise and nutrition, stepping into this world of applied health and well-being physi physiology. And one of the first models that was introduced to me when we went through our 12-week training program as it was then was this model called the illness wellness continuum. And I'm sure many of you will have come across this before. But for me, back in 2006, this was a pretty revolutionary. It's very much defined by the absence or presence of a diagnosable health condition. And that was the model that the corporate wellness program that we had inherited was stepping into. And the illness wellness continuum was this concept that said, actually, there is a state beyond simply not having poor health that is wellness. And so what we should be aiming for with the people that we're supporting is not just the absence of a diagnosable issue. And it's not that if you don't have a diagnosable issue, wellness is high, but actually it's a thing you've got to constantly strive to move forwards. So this illness wellness continuum really helped me. It was pretty eye-opening when I saw it. But then as I progressed through, I started to see some flaws in this. And one of the biggest flaws is that this is a really one-dimensional model. So you're on a spectrum somewhere from one end to the other. And the bit I struggled with is what happens to those people who have a diagnosed medical condition like diabetes, but equally day in, day out, tend to feel really good. They actually have a high level of well-being. And this model just didn't allow for that concept to be considered. So then you move into things like the dual continuum model of well-being, which is actually then starting to bring more of a two-dimensional view of the world, which says actually on one hand, you do have this concept of health, so the horizontal, which might go from diagnosed to no diagnosed health condition, but separate 
And related to that is this concept of well-being, where you can go from languishing at the bottom all the way up to flourishing at the top. And it was really helpful for me to start to actually recognize that these things were related, but they're not one and the same. And there is a difference between health and wellness and well-being. And then when I came over to WorkSafe, one of the things they were grappling with is that organizations were saying, we do this stuff, we do work-related health already. And when we'd go and talk to them about what they were doing, they'd say, well, we do cholesterol checks, we do step challenges, we do all of these things that New Zealand workplaces, not all, but many, were saying, surely that's work-related health. We're doing it at the workplace and it's about people's health. And so what you see in front of you is is a diagram I came up with as ever. They're not perfect, but they help. That really tries to depict that actually there is this need to protect people from harm caused by work. That's where WorkSafe step in. There's this step above and beyond that, which is health promotion, or what I think of as wellness, which is actually where you are working to improve the positive physical and mental health of an individual. But you're still left with this concept of well-being, which is a thing above and beyond wellness. And that articulation of a thing that's above and beyond wellness, I found really, really interesting. And so you still end up in the space saying, well, okay, that's great. If well-being is different to wellness, what is well-being? And this is where the psychological psychology literature really helps us because actually there's a huge body of evidence and literature that has tested this and found models that explain it. And there's historically been two kind of key things, but in the past maybe decade or so, a third one has emerged. So you look at the psychological literature on what is well-being. And when we talk about well-being, I'm talking about subjective psychological well-being. So it's the state that a person feels and experiences. The first thing that people used to talk about is this concept of hedonia or hedonic well-being. And this is really about the regularity of positive emotions, the satisfaction someone has with life, or the fact that they don't feel regularly negative emotions. So this is the one that most people go to. So when people ask about how happy are you, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about hedonia or hedonic well-being. And this is a core concept in the psychology of what well-being is. But in itself, it's not enough because there's other factors that really drive subjective psychological well-being. And the second one is this concept of eudaimonia or eudaimonic well-being. And the shorthand for this is that eudaimonia is about a strong sense of purpose. It is that you are growing as an individual, you are stretching, and you're contributing to something above and beyond who you are as a person. And these two models alone actually help explain a lot. So one of the things we know is that if you look at people who have won the lottery, they get a short-term boost in the reported well-being they have because that hedonic well-being jumps up. You know, life satisfaction, great. Positive emotions, great. All going up. But if you ask them a few years later, they're typically no better off than the average person is who hasn't won the lottery and sometimes are even worse. And that's explained by the eudaimonic concept, because if you win the lottery and you leave your job and you go and live on a yacht, your hedonic sense has gone through the roof. But your sense of purpose, why do I exist? What is it that gets me out of bed every day in the morning? That's actually taken a bit of a nosedive. So this concept helps you to understand actually why you've got this continuum between the two. The third one that's come in is, it came in about 10 years ago from Martin Seligman, which many of you will be familiar with. And it was this concept of PERMA. And PERMA stands for positive emotions, positivity, engagement, relationships, meaning and achievement. And so what Seligman said is, actually, there are two things that are missing from the 
hedonic and eudaimonic construct, which is this sense of engagement and achievement. So that's quite a long way of getting to a short answer, which is what do I think well-being is? I think well-being is about regular positive emotions. I think it's about a strong sense of purpose and mastery. But it's helpful to go through that because I found it really helpful as I've worked through this in my career to recognize why when we often talk about well-being, we're actually frequently not. We're talking about wellness. We're often talking about good lifestyle intervention, dietary habits, you know, the amount of steps you do, all of those things. Well-being is beyond that. Well-being is about that subjective psychological state of good, regular, positive emotions. And then it's also about the strong sense of purpose. That's important to know because when we talk later about how do you measure well-being, you've got to be clear on what it is that you think you're trying to get your head around. Does that help, Sarah? I'm not sure. Yes, yes, it does. And I almost have sort of two questions that fall out of that. And the first one is, you know, I think you answered that actually quite well. I was thinking, you know, where does diet and exercise and some of those critical things fit into that model? You know, because obviously we're talking about it being quite a psychological concept, but you, you described that well as being part of wellness. Where would you place things like financial well-being or some of those other, you know, more external, perhaps driven things yep. in a model like that? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a great question. But those factors are factors that they are the drivers of the antecedents of well-being, right? So we talk about financial well-being again as if it's a thing in itself. It's not. Financial well-being will influence your hedonic state. So if you are stressed because of your money, don't be surprised if actually your life satisfaction is low or you are regularly experiencing negative emotions. So those other factors do come into it, but they come into it as drivers of hedonia or eudaimonia or to a degree that perma state that Martin Seligman talks about. But they're not well-being in themselves. They are drivers of well-being that, yes, you absolutely want to understand, but let's not confuse them. And so what I, that's one of the things I latch onto when we talk about financial well-being. I think we should be talking about what is the financial state a person has? What is the financial health a person has? Absolutely. But well-being is the summation. It's the outcome of those things. And, and that's the thing we need to keep in mind. It's the outcome that we want to be focusing on when we're talking about measuring well-being. Mm, I think that's key. And then the other part I wanted to just get a differentiation from you because I can see this is a common issue that comes up in organisations. When we start talking about psychological health in terms of well-being, there's a, there's a gravitation towards mental health, which is actually mental illness, which is actually depression, anxiety, if we're really going to go to the popular topics in that area. So how do you help organisations kind of or, or people think about that psychological health as being entirely different or part of that, that sort of mental health concept or mental illness, perhaps, is where I'm heading? Yeah, and I think that's where models like the dual continuum model are really helpful because you know you can pop that up in front of people who aren't familiar with that, that world and instantly help them to understand that all of it is really important and all of it is really interesting. So it's not that you're disregarding the fact that some people will be experiencing stress, anxiety and depression. And it's helpful to know that. It's helpful to understand what the organization in particular can do. But it's also then not recognizing that just because you have a low number of people who are experiencing stress, anxiety, and depression, it doesn't automatically mean, well, therefore, well-being must be high. You can absolutely have lots of staff who do not have stress, anxiety, and depression, and yet their well-being is low and they are languishing, and you're, you, know, you can take steps to address it. And so I think there are models like that that help people to grasp quite readily why you need to understand both, but don't confuse one for the other. That's such a such a great answer, and I, and I love that. And it leads to my next question, which 
Is that what took you from looking at individual well-being to organizational well-being? That's a desire to do something across a broader group. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, it was really, I look back now at the naive young guy I was at that point, and it, it really, as I look back, comes out of how I think I approached individual health and well-being. So I remember being a personal trainer, very naive, not, not knowing much at all, and thinking, well, people's health is really all about their choices, right? It's about their knowledge, it's about what they do and what they're motivated to do. So if we want to improve that, then we've got to focus on the individual. We've got to give them more knowledge. We've got to motivate them. And one of the things I started to realize is that many of the clients I was working with who were really struggling to improve their health and well-being knew more than I did already. They were deeply motivated to get there. And what I started to realize as I moved more into the public health space is that actually it wasn't the fact that we couldn't motivate these people, they didn't know enough. It's that the ecosystem, the environment that those people operated within and lived within was simply making it almost impossible for them to achieve and sustain their goals. So it's really unhelpful telling someone who is, as an example, trying to lose weight that they should exercise a bit more and they should eat a bit more if their salary doesn't allow them to buy fruit and vegetables, if they live in an area where they feel unsafe, if they are working two and a half jobs you know, just to survive, coming in and trying to motivate those people and say, well, actually, it's all about you and it's all your choice. It, it to me, feels like it's doing them a real disservice. It's not their choice at all. It's the environment they're operating in. And so then as I moved from focusing on the individual to organizational well-being, I started to see a similar pattern that when businesses were talking about employee well-being, they were still in the mindset of our goal has to be to motivate our individual staff members to want to turn up to a seminar, to want to eat healthy, to do all of these things that are about individual choice. And if they don't do it, it's because they've chosen not to. And our goal should be to motivate them. And instead, I increasingly saw it that actually the goal is to shift the organizational settings so that the person doesn't need to try as hard to be well. And that was quite a fundamental shift for me, but it really helped me to move away from how do we motivate these individuals? So actually, how do we have really searching questions about, are we asking too much of our staff? Are, you know, are we asking them to work too many hours? Is the way that we set up their clarity of role really poor so that they're anxious about what they do and what others do? So I think, I think the progression is coming out of a naive space where I believed it was all about individual choice and knowledge towards a much bigger view of the world, which is we exist within systems and those systems, whether we realize it or not, influence us every single day. And our goal should be to influence the system to tilt it in favor of well-being. And most systems, if I'm honest, many organizations are tilted away from well-being and we still, we just put the onus on the individual themselves to try and get around that. Mm, I agree. It's almost that individualistic versus cult, collective culture approach, isn't it? Because in a lot of the Western sort of society, we focus around the individual, individual achievement, your own goals, your own ability to motivate or not motivate yourself. And yet what I love about that is you're actually really focusing on what can the organisation do to create environments that support people wherever they're at on their journey. And is, is that what you're finding in corrections? Because I imagine, I mean, it's a really big organisation. Tell me a bit about the size and sort of structure of the organisation for those who are not familiar. Corrections is an organisation, so it's about 10,000. Uh, we have roughly 160 sites across the country. So we've got 17 prisons and then we've got about 140 corporate. Uh, sorry, community sites. Obviously, our role is to help keep New Zealand safe and to assist people who come into our system to rehabilitate and lead some really fulfilling lives. 
probably one of the most risk diverse and complex organizations. So not only do we have to manage you know, interactions with people who themselves may have emotional challenges, but actually we operate construction yards and forestry operations. We operate farms. We operate engineering sites, manufacturing sites, industrial laundries, industrial kitchens. So I came into this organization thinking uh, there's probably one big risk, which is you know assaults. That is still there, but I certainly had no idea coming in from WorkSafe that virtually all of the big industries I focused on when I was there were actually replicated in this organization. So it's big and it's challenging, but it is made up of some amazing people doing amazing work. And the wellbeing agenda is still in its infancy. So, you know, there's a lot of focus that has been put on the safety side of the, of the focus. But one of the things we're increasingly doing is using that focus on organizational systems and wellbeing to understand how our organizational settings might be affecting people's wellbeing and resilience. And we're using that information to strategically make decisions about how we change our settings so that well-being is more likely to be the outcome that we achieve for our people. Yeah. And so actually on that, can you talk a little bit about that, about you know, well-being being an emergent property of a, of a role or a job? What are some of the factors that you're looking at? I know this is a well-being conversation, but I think I might just start talking about safety, if that's okay, because it's really in my understanding of safety that I started to look back at well-being, see similar patterns. And to understand this concept of emergent properties and how well-being fits in, which I think is really important for us as well-being professionals, we've got to understand two things. One is what's emergence, but also what, what is the concept of systems in which we operate? And so um, all of us operate within different systems. We might not realize it, but there's kind of three or four big ones. So some of our systems are simple. These are very direct relationships between two or three things, very predictable outcomes. We can really describe the system. Complicated systems are things that actually might, we might initially think there's no way that I can fully understand this system, but you can actually break it down. You can put it back together again, and it will always lead to the same outcome. You'll always get the same thing from it. So if you take an aeroplane, you might look at that and think that's a really complex thing, but it's not. It's complicated. I can take a part. Or actually, I'm going to reframe that. I definitely couldn't take part an aeroplane. Someone could definitely take part an aeroplane, put it back together again, and the plane would be absolutely fit to fly. So complicated systems and simple systems are where we as safety professionals have spent most of our time focusing. And what works in, and I'll talk about this in a second, simple and complicated systems are rules and one-off interventions, big national plans and programs, procedures that describe exactly how work should be done. All of those things are solutions to simple and complicated systems. One of the things I've realized over the past few years and I've become familiar with, though, is that organizations are not simple and they're not complicated. Organizations are complex systems. We call them socio-technical. And complex systems are a very interesting thing. So in a complex system, firstly, you never actually know the entirety of the system. So you can't ever say, this is it, I can put my arms around it, and I can tell you where it starts and stops. The factors within the system act really unpredictably. So whereas in simple and complicated systems, the direction of travel from cause and effect is really obvious, it's not like that in complex systems. It can be back and forth, and it can be nonlinear. Nonlinear means that a really small thing can have a disproportionately large consequence. And the other thing about complex systems is that they are adaptive. So they are changing all the time dynamically as the system components interact with one another. 
And what that means is that you can't ever guarantee or predict the outcomes that are going to come from things in a complex system. And why does that matter? That matters because it influences the intervention strategy that we choose. And so if you look at an intervention strategy for a simple system, it's pretty basic. You understand through sense what the system looks like. You categorize it into its constituent parts and you intervene. If you go to a complicated system, you firstly need to try and make sense of it. But then to do that, you've got to analyze. So there's a lot of analytical work that goes into complicated systems. And then you intervene. And historically, I think this is where most safety people have lived, is they've tried to analyze why people are dying. And they've tried to find very linear cause and effect relationships and intervene there. And actually, what we've understood more and more is that as organizations and supply chains and other things are complex systems, you can't actually analyze and come up with definitive answers. What you can do is you can test the system by putting something into it, seeing what happens, building the ability to adapt dynamically, and then responding with an intervention to see if that one leads to some of the outcome you're expecting. So if we look at safety, the model I've described pre-Christmas to a few people kind of looks something like this. So in a complex organization, you typically have goals in the middle. You've got people, you've got buildings, you've got technology, you've got culture, you've got these procedures. And they're all dynamically interacting and influencing one another, even if we don't realize it. And sat around that, you've got legal, stakeholders, and financial. So you've got this complex system. It's constantly moving. It's dynamically influencing all the things that go on. You can never predict what's going to happen. And safety is a thing that emerges out of that system. Now, sometimes it will emerge out and it will be minimal and someone will get hurt. Sometimes it will emerge out and it'll be maximal and everyone goes home well. So this concept of an emergent property is essentially a name we give to things that can't be broken down or put onto any one part of a system. So you can't take safety, look at any one of those things, whether it's goals, people, technology, and say that that alone is what will give us safety. It's the sum of all of the parts being greater than the constituent parts itself. So this is, this is kind of where safety thinking is these days, that we need to intervene to create safety not by trying to take point solutions where we change a piece of equipment or give training or create a new rule, but instead we've got to understand the dynamic way that these systems operate, and then we've got to use that to make it more likely than not that safety will be the outcome we see. But we can't ever guarantee it. We can't predict it. It's only in hindsight that we see how those factors aligned and influenced each other to create this outcome. Now, bring it back to well-being, because actually well-being is the same. Well-being is an emergent property. It's an outcome of. You can't ever say well-being relates back to this one thing. And as long as we do that thing, everyone will get well-being. That's just not achievable. So well-being is an emergent outcome of, sorry, it's an emergent property or an outcome of the factors that go on to influence it. Now, I'm very much coming at this from an organizational well-being perspective. It's just some of the factors that I know evidence tells us will influence well-being. So you've got someone's role the amount of control or autonomy that they have, the relationships at work, the demands and intensity that's placed on them, the organizational climate. And by climate, what we're talking there is workers' perceptions of what matters to management, whether we say it explicitly or it's implicit, the buildings and infrastructure, the job conditions, technology and change. All of these things are constantly living in your organization. Your procedures will say one thing, they will be experienced in a different way. 
And we can't ever say which one of those is at any one point going to be more or less important. But if you get them right, then well-being is the more likely outcome that you will see emerge. But if you don't, if those things are well out of kilter, then it is more likely that the outcome will be the absence of well-being. So you will fail to achieve good well-being. Does that help, Sarah, in terms of? That does, yeah. And actually, it leads to kind of an interesting question or, or something to test with you. Often what we find is that people who are responsible for wellbeing strategies and organisations don't necessarily have the level of influence perhaps that someone of your level might have across the organisation in being able to manage things like job demands or set organisational climate or some of those other things. So how, how can, can those sort of wellbeing managers put something in place or start to change some of those things? What have you found in your experience? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I, I think firstly, getting getting to grips and being able to describe this kind of these kind of concepts is going to be really important. You do need to be comfortable trying to help people understand why the organisation is where the effort should be, rather than the individual. That, that does take take some understanding to get there. The other thing I think is helping helping the organisation to see the benefits that will come from these sorts of interventions. So I know there's a lot of evidence that's that's kind of bandied around in the literature about return on investment that comes from well-being interventions. But actually, if you look at it, and if you look at particularly public health evidence and data, it's actually really hard to get organization get the employees in an organization to make sustained changes to their behaviors day in, day out. It's it's really hard. That's why public health budgets are so big, and organizations, I think, spend a lot of money trying to achieve those things when they probably find greater wins, greater returns coming from shifting some of these organizational factors. In terms of how you get the buy-in to this sort of stuff, one is make sure you've got a really good sponsor. So it doesn't matter which role you're in, identify who those key stakeholders are, make, make friends with them, but more than anything, understand the drivers that that stakeholder has. So if you're trying to get this off the ground and you want to have a conversation with the chief finance officer, you're probably going to want to be having conversations about the financial impact that comes from having unwell people or the productivity gains that will likely come from having well people. If you're heading in and having a conversation with a chief people officer or a chief HR officer, you probably want to have a conversation with them about the engagement benefits that tend to come when employees feel valued. If you're going in and having a conversation with the operational or safety officer, you probably want to have a conversation with them about the safety or the, again. Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the revolutionaries of wellbeing, head to rowwellbeing, that's R-O-W wellbeing.com and follow the links to sign up. If you're in our community, thanks again. And we look forward to catching up with you really soon.